All right, all right, all right. That's right, all right, all right, out. Everybody out there in the podcast world, back back at you with another Where the Pavement Ends episode. And today might be a little different because you're only going to hear my voice of the three usual. No Alex, no Clint today, just me. And you will hear a different voice. We have a new partner in the game here, and it is Secure It Gun Stores, Secure It Safes, and Tom Kubinek is in the house with us today, all the way from the East Coast. Where are you from? I am in uh, southeast of Syracuse, New York. I live in the kind of the foothills to the Catskill Mountains, and then Secure It Headquarters is in Syracuse, New York. That's about almost as far away as you can get from us. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's good. I love getting out here. Love being out in the West. I spent a lot of time in my early life in the mountains. I did a lot of hiking, some rock climbing, and uh, it's always good to get back out to the mountains. I've got, you know, my wife's got a huge family um, in central New York, so when we ended up with three kids, we decided we should raise our kids close to family. Yeah. But there's a point that, uh, and we're getting closer to it, where we will be Empty I mean, nesting? Well, we're going to be looking for someplace else to live. I got to tell you, oh. I mean, people think New York. They think New York City. Um, I live on a mountain lake. It's a little town of 3,000. Uh, 15 minutes away, I have a 500-acre hunting ranch, which is all rolling hills, heavily wooded, spectacular Beautiful. views. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievable yeah, not far place. Nor- not, no- not far from north of New York City, it gets damn pretty. It does, and... Uh, the summers there are spectacular. Winters can be tough, but uh, you know we'll probably always keep the hunting property. We're looking at building a, a big retreat out there right now, and then uh, I'd like to be. I wouldn't mind being out here. I I was up in Montana, on this trip prior to coming down here doing some work in western Montana. Beautiful area. Yeah, love that area. Love Wyoming. Talk about hard winters though. Montana can yeah, get some hard winters, but you're used to it up there. It is true. Um, you know, again, yeah, for a winter place, the uh, there's some nice areas in Florida, intercoastal. Um, south of Tampa is beautiful, the Jupiter area. I mean, there's a ton of areas in Florida. My mom's there's actually wh- looking at a place, the villages. Oh, yeah. My mom's actually, <laughs> she's got some cousins and some yeah, aunts and everything back in the villages. That is the world's biggest retirement community. Yeah. I'd want to be on the water or close to the water, um, close to some good fishing, close to some good hunting, and just the wildlife around those habitats. Um I'm not a big fan of manicured living. I like to be in the... Yeah, for sure. I, mean, I don't mind having a nice-looking lawn and all that, but I just want to be in an area where it's closer tie, a tie to nature, not a... Uh, well, we are kindred yeah. spirits in that yeah. aspect, for sure. Yeah. So we've been talking for about, what, two years now? A little, just about, it's, almost, oh just God. under two years, yeah. just about two years. Time goes quick. And um, you were out here summer... Last summer, right? Yeah. It was just that yeah, last summer. Here, yeah. Yeah, last summer and we got to know each other and and uh you know, now we've got some Foul Life Edition safes and some other stuff that we're working on and that's that's been a good it's gonna be a great relationship. You guys you guys do a great job. We're uh I'm really excited. You know, yeah, it's I'm the owner of the too. company. I gotta tell you something. I love working with you guys. It, it's um Chad's a great guy, which what you guys do, um not just as a as a media company, as a production company, you know, but the number of people that are influenced by what you guys do in a positive way, because you guys put a lot of people together. I've I've met so many people through my relationship with you guys, and I always watch Chad like putting these things together 
people together. And it's really for the benefit of the outdoor in shooting sports, you know, for 100%. hunting. I mean, how much how much does the whole duck hunting, waterfowl hunting world benefit from the work that you guys do? You guys probably can't measure. I mean, you might not even look at it, but I just watch. I watch the interaction. I watch what's happening, and uh, you guys are committed. You're making well, a difference. Well, thank you. Yeah, we. I mean, from day one when we started the business in 2008, we always had the idea basically of, you know, a duck's brain or a coyote's brain or a deer's brain is – only so small, right? And yeah. you got to really be, we got to say an ass, t- to think that you're better than anybody else yeah. or above the animal when reality, it's all about the people and the connections that you make. And that's what, yeah. from day one, we always thought, if you were to watch us on TV, hopefully you would feel as if you could jump in the truck with us and just be in duck right. camp with us. Yeah. And, it's, and we've really stuck to that. And I mean, that's how we were raised. And I think from what we've been able to accomplish, like you're saying, the the 15 years of on air and all the sponsors that we have is just, I think, a, a testament of the connections that we've made. Well, and that's what it's more about, I think, to it us. It is, but you guys also, um, your show is shot at a different level than almost any, I don't watch a lot of television. I really, I, mean, I just don't. But your show is something that it's just, artistically it's beautifully shot i mean it's just the scenes are so well put together from from just how the camera how it's set up how it's lit the drone shots how you represent or how you present the outdoor experience because there's there's a lot of sh- i well, mean the, it is it's a, it's very it's very time consuming it I is mean, each episode takes about three weeks to go through footage because we yeah. have seven excuse me seven or eight cameras rolling yeah. at on every hunt and like i was alluding to earlier the hunting is just the benefit, you know, yeah. the the glory of what we get to do of going to these duck camps and coyote camps and deer camps and turkey camps and everything that we get to do. But to tell the story of the people behind who's in camp, the cooks, you know, right. the janitor, those are the stories that people really connect to. Because like I said, if you need to show that you can kill 30 ducks every or 100 ducks or 200 it's not what it's about does. Right. So it's, um, yeah, the the shot is the culmination, but reflecting back, it's always the whole day. It's always the whole experience. I, I mean, we talk, yeah. I talked with Chad earlier, um, those quiet times in a, in a blind or in a stand, you know, as a forest wakes up, they're just, it's that's golden time. Man, there's nothing better. Yep, I agree. So I kind of want to talk about, I, I, I specifically want to talk about one thing, and I don't know if you and Chad talked about it earlier, um, two things. One, you really struck me uh, last time when we met when you were out here about how you got into this business. Um, kind of, t- kind of tell our audience. <laughs> I, I just think it's an unbelievable story of the American entrepreneurial. You know, to be an entrepreneur, just knowing what could work, what yeah. didn't work, and where we are today because of you. Well, it's let's <laughs> for people should understand. Um, yeah, I'm an avid hunter. Yeah. I'm a, I spend, I've always been an outdoor person. I didn't get into hunting until 2007, 2008. Because um, mom and dad didn't do it? Or yeah, I, gr- I grew it? up, I grew up, my, we fished. Okay. I grew up, I mean, I've, I've spent my life, I've loved being outdoors, but I grew up, my dad liked the fish. Okay. And now he, I, have an, I had an uncle who hunted a little bit, my grandfather a little bit, my dad absolutely, we didn't have firearms in the house. I didn't grow up with with firearms, so I was an avid fisherman. But out of high school, I was a musician. I was I, 
started playing guitar when I was 13. By the time I was 17, I was playing six, seven hours a day. That's all I did. I wanted to be the best guitar player I could possibly be. And uh, I did that for about 10 years um, professionally. Ended up with tendonitis, ended my career. Um, at the time, it was brutal. Thought my life was over. However, you know, four or five years later, I looked back and I realized I wasn't happy as a musician. I liked playing, but I didn't like the life of a musician. Yeah. I, it just wasn't for me. And uh, I started a small business selling computer supplies, just telemarketing in my apartment. I'd, I'd taken a job when I couldn't play, and the only job I could get was a telemarketing job. And uh, I probably hung up on you. <laughs> I, well, it was, I, we were B two B, and this is early. This is early. This is the very beginning of telemarketing. This is before it was popular. I worked for one of the first companies to come out with this, wow. so people were kind of surprised to get these calls. And uh, then I it was selling computer supplies. I went off on my own, started a business in my apartment, and then uh, you know a few months later, rented a small office, hired a few people. By uh, I had a partner. We worked together, and by time you know three years in, we had 17 sales reps, and it was going really well. And it was all B two B, so you're just building relationships, and yep. you end up you know you build those kind of relationships, and you're selling something people buy on a regular basis. You end up with 200 friends that you talk to every month, and it worked really well. I transitioned that into a web business in the late 90s, selling um, we were selling like computer storage um, racks for tapes, cabinets for locking up hard drives, and uh, you know, securing data equipment. That was kind of the world I was in when the HIPAA laws came out for hospitals. They had to, all of a sudden, you have to lock every laptop. Anything with personal data has to be secured. Well, there was a panic, so I created um, securelaptopstorage.com and hipaalaptopstorage.com and hospitalstorage.com, all these websites. Um, we took some of our cabinets and repurposed them for laptop storage. So we had... It was a big cabinet with individual locking compartments. You could put like 20 laptops in there, and it was network wired. So all, they'd all be plugged in. So every night, the hospital could update and charge the laptops. And during the day, doctors would check them out. Okay. And they don't do that. I mean, that was the early days yeah. before tech got crazy. But the company did really, really well. And uh, we became one of the largest sellers of those products in the country. And in 2002, a guy called me. He got a phone call. And he's like, can you guys store an MP5? <laughs> now again, I'm thinking computers. What's an MP5? Right. I, I, my first reaction to any of any salesman is, sure, absolutely. I said, what's an MP5? And uh, he goes, it's a small machine gun. I started laughing. He goes, with a little submachine gun. And uh, I was like, who is this? And he was with the FBI. And I said, well, sir, you know what? I talked to him for a while. I said, I think we can. Can you give me a little bit of time? Can I get a few days? He said, yeah, I got plenty of time. Take a week and. Uh, let me know what your thoughts are. Because he had liked the look of our cabinets. And uh, I started doing some research. This is before Google. This is, you know, Yahoo was the main search engine. <laughs> and it was nowhere near. Dial-up still? No, we were, we were <laughs> I was, you know, no, it was T1. It was dial-up or it was, uh, there was an intermediate and then it was a T1. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was three, 400 bucks a month at least yeah. for sharing part of I me. Mean, it was really expensive. But I started doing research and so seeing all the, you know, these references to the military struggling, military armories. I was just I was you know focusing in on on weapons storage, military storage, on you know FBI gun storage. And I kept coming up with these. Um, again, it wasn't like news articles because the internet didn't work like that before. But these posts and references and people in forums talking about the problems in military armories, and uh, my company that made laptop storage. 
was out of Canada and I had a great relationship with the owner. We were good friends. I called him. I said, Steve, I said, I got this phone call. This guy was a store an MP5. Steve was a gun guy and he knew right away what that was. I said, what do you think about taking what we're doing now, converting these and making them into weapon cabinets? He started laughing. He goes, Tom, I'm already working with the Canadian government to, to design a storage solution for their <laughs> C, C5s and C4, which is their equivalent of the, of the M4. And I started laughing, no kidding. So we got together, compared notes, and, and made our first system, which was called the Integrated Weapon Storage Platform, made in Canada. It was a modular, adjustable system. Um, the problem with U.S. military, they were transitioning from the M16 to the M4, which is a, you know, every M16 is 39 inches. They're all pretty much the same. It's a basic battle rifle. The M4 is a modular weapon system. Different stocks, different length barrels. There was so much. Now, early on, they were pretty simple, but they sop mod attached. I mean, they got their quad rail came in, and all of a sudden, there's all these attachments, yeah. and these things become very flexible. Every rack in existence is designed to hold a 39-inch gun, and it won't hold a 30-inch gun. Thir <laughs> you know, it's it's got to be 39 inches because that's they were hard, hard made, you know, tube frame racks for M16s, and. Uh, so we came up with this system without selling it into the into the government. We were having some success. We weren't a major player, but we had a solution, and they liked it. Um, the locking system Steve designed, and it was based on an ASA Abloy um, high-security keyed lock. And the U.S. military only wants padlocks because they want to be able to go in and cut the lock off if somebody loses the keys. Mm -hmm. In Canada, they were keyed locks, so the lock was integrated into the cabinet. And uh, I met with Steve, and we were handling, you know, we were handling the U.S., but he was also allowing other dealers, dealers that sold other products that they make, to also sell weapon cabinets. So we'd go in, meet with a military group, put together a proposal, it'd go out to bid, and his other dealers were undercutting me. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, we kind of had a, Call it a come to Jesus meeting, whatever you want to call it. About you know, Steve, I got to get some protection. I and we were good friends. He yeah. understood, but he says, Tom, I can't. I don't do exclusives. I can't do exclusives. Steve, I mean, I'm the guy designing this with you. He says, I understand that. He's trying to work around. What we can do is percentage of sales will go to secure all these different things. And I said, Steve, we, we've got to address the locking solution. I need. We, we, and he was hesitant to make changes. Um, at the same time, I became aware of a. Pending solicitation by USAFIC, uh, U.S. Army Special Forces Command, which is now just part of SOCOM, which is Special Forces Operations, um, was about to put out a solicitation for an arms room assessment. Their armories were failing inspections, failing bad. This is where the story, I think. Yeah, yeah and uh, <laughs> so we became aware that this was, was, and it was somebody that worked for us as an outside rep, just happened to overhear a conversation, brought it to us. And uh, what they were looking to do was to hire a company to come in and over a period of 18 months, travel to all their armories, survey the armories, meet the armors, you know, do all this work to basically present a report to command as to why their armories are failing miserable and gear is being broken. It was a mess. So we became aware of it. And there's a colonel, there was a colonel in Fort Bragg, I think he was with third group, um, who was a spearhead. He was the guy. And once, once the solicitation is issued, all you can do is read the solicitation and ask questions to a contracting officer. You can't talk to anybody. They just they shut it all down just for, for fair bidding rules and all this stuff. But it hadn't been solicited yet. So we got a hold of him and scheduled a meeting prior to. We just want to introduce ourselves because we were 
Secure it was a three-person company. I had a girl in my office, I had a guy named Gary Myrick, who was my, he was a sales rep that worked with me, and uh, it was just the three of us. So we, we got a meeting scheduled, and Gary and I get down to Fort Bragg, and we're staying like at a, a Hilton Garden Inn. You know, we're in the morning, we got the white shirt, like, our shirt's white enough. I mean, <laughs> do we look the park? You know, we're up against L3, Harris. We're up against major Big defense contractors, yeah. yeah, who just, they, they got their act together. And we're nobodies. So we get the meeting, and it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. So we come, we're escorted in. We come into his office, and he's got a big desk, and he's a good, I mean, he's a big guy, a little intimidating, but not bad. And I walked up to shake his hand. I said, Sir, Tom Kubinek, um, president of Secure Tactical, I'm considered the leading authority on small arm storage and armory design. I, I really think we're the company, I think we are the company to do this job. And we sat down, we had a nice conversation, talked about 20 minutes, which that's a lot of time for one of these guys. And uh, he can't promise anything. We can just talk about what their goals are and things because he can't give me too many deals because of the, some of the contracting rules. Yeah, the meeting was over. We left. And, and you know, Gary's like, leading what's the, the – I think he dropped the F. <laughs> but, you know, what the hell was that? He, he, was, he goes, leading – I said, Gary, you know what? There's, there's no authority in this whole space. There's no company doing this. Nobody, nobody really knows this. This is a whole new problem. It's a whole new world of what's happening. The weapon racks they've been using, they kind of made themselves. And uh, nobody knows. I said, I said, who's to say we're not? I just walked in there and said I'm the leading authority. Who's to say I'm not? And anybody that comes in now and said, no, he's not. We are. I am. Prove it. Yeah. They can't. And uh, it, I just I had nothing to lose. And I've kind of... There's been many situations that I look at in, in my life where when you got nothing to lose, go for it. Yeah, why not? Yeah. It's uh So it's, long story short, you got the job. We wait, got, we won the contract, the contract and uh, spent the next uh 18 months on the road going to all their armories and we had access that civilians don't get. So I spent I surveyed the place, lots of photographs, looked at the problems, sat our interview with the armors talking about their lives, what they do, their challenges, the struggles in an armory. And then we just sat and watched them work. We, 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 had, we, had, we were there all day and just watching during shift changes how things all go. And uh, it was a long process, tons of notes. We compiled a report for command to present to um, the head guys at Fort Bragg, which we did. But also during that time is when the, all the lights went on. And we saw the solution, which was not the Canadian solution. It was what we designed and patented was the Secure Tactical Model 84 Weapon Storage Platform. A really fancy, we, wanted, we just wanted yeah. something to sound cool for the military. We call it Cradle Grid. <laughs> and, it, and it came down to simplicity. Everything they had was becoming too complex. Um, the DASCO system that we were selling had 270 different components. Mm. Um, the other competitor, which was a company called Space Saver, good company. I know the, the president. He's a good guy. But they had a solution, and they were already well ahead of us in the marketplace. Their solution had, I think, 130 different brackets, meaning every time you have a different gun, you have a certain bracket that properly holds that gun. When the system's installed, it works perfectly. The minute the military changes some guns or anything changes in the armory, you got the wrong bracket. Right. And in the military, you just can't buy stuff. Spending money's hard. Is your system still in... Oh, yeah. All these places. Oh, yeah. And our system, the advantage was we had one moving part. This upper cradle holds everything from an MP5 to a little sub on up to 50 cals Mark 19 shoulder launch systems, mortar cannons. 
requires no tools. So the armor could walk up to my rack. Whatever gun was in his hand, he could adjust the rack on the fly and put the gun in there pro and it was stored properly. Mm -hmm. And then all the bins and everything, they could source those at Home Depot to store all the gear. Have there been any <clears throat> excuse me, new weapons that they have developed militarily that you've had to go back and design something to change yours a little bit or to accept not, the new weaponry? No, or? not we've we I, you know, I'll, I'll get to, we didn't have to. We chose to for a Marine Corps project, but there are some challenges like the Tavor came out. That's an Israeli gun. And the military, U.S. military doesn't use them. We actually there's a Tavor USA in Pennsylvania. We built their armory and it has this monster charging handle that sticks out the side. And our traditional system wasn't going to work well. So for them, we made a simple modification sp to turn the gun a little bit for the charging handle. Um, but we really have the, the simplicity of the it system. Is, I mean, I love working because you can, we've done it here the past yeah. couple of days. If you have an old safe, mm -hmm. you could take your system and basically gut the inside of an old safe and yeah. make it. Right, and you can do it without without destroying the safe. I mean, exactly. you're keeping the you're keeping the walls. You can do it partially, um, but with the Marine Corps, we did develop um, in Okinawa. They wanted a solution where the guns would snap into the racks, mm -hmm. because they had such a problem of slings getting tangled. And the the uh, master guns we worked with, he said, "Tom, I want the guns to snap in the rack," and that's all <laughs> he would consider. And this was a big. We won the contract. It was an eight million dollar contract. Um, so we designed, and we still, it's available now in the civilian world. It replaces our little bungee system. And so the upper cradle, little spring steel piece clips into it, and the guns literally snap into the rack. And then we had to design specific brackets for 50 cals of Mark 19s because they wanted those to snap in as well. And that's the only group, um, Okinawa, we've done almost a whole island that has that system. Um, we have it available. I don't think there's big applications. I don't think it's necessary for a big army, and it was very expensive to make but they the marine corps wanted they had specific challenges that they needed to solve and we solved it for them and so you took that you that's where you started yeah right military yeah but now you've taken that system yeah. and kind of made it into you know consumer level grade. it's 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 but the same engineering it, it, same. Oh, it's, it is the exact same system yeah. the crazy thing here and this is you know message to all people in, in life and in business and entrepreneurs is we all only see what we want to see sometimes or we don't see obvious things and we have blinders on that we, we're unaware of. So we're a defense contractor. We're at this point, um, 2008, we're the largest supplier. 2009, we're the largest supplier to the U.S. military. Internationally, our business was growing and things were just, the company was, I mean, the company was booming we were hiring people it's growing like crazy i had a plane i'm a pilot so I had a, I had a little plane i was flying all over the east coast it was really it was a cool company and we were we were having a ball making money and uh sequestration hit under the obama administration now i'm not a supporter of obama and some of his ideas it was no it was not an obama problem it was a congressional problem where in I don't know, it was 2007, 2008, they, to get a budget passed, they said, okay, we'll agree to this budget on the one condition that in 2012, if we can't get the budget to these numbers, we're going to have forced military cutbacks that were so severe. Mm. They were so severe that they figured in 2012, we will have a budget because there's no way anybody will let this happen. 
There's this crazy, stupid things politicians do. Well, in 2012, they didn't couldn't get the budget passed. Sequestration hit, and it affected the military down to the unit level individual guys. Wow. The money faucet was turned off, and we were rocking and rolling. You know, um, good sized companies selling a lot of stuff, and sequestration hits like on a Wednesday. We didn't get a single order for over five months. We got nothing. I mean, our the everything just turned off. So for five months, well, you know, we're coming into this. I'm making payroll. And we're waiting. We're hoping, yeah, yeah, things are starting. Don't worry. It's going to get back. And we're going, you know, just optimistically. We know there's a need for the product. Thinking they're going to resolve it. They're going to resolve it. And they're not. And time's going by, and I drain my bank account. And then I started selling off pieces. I ended up laying a lot of people off. I sold the plane, sold everything. I was down to... Basically, my wife and I were looking at farm, little farmhouses. I have a house on a lake. It's a nice house. It was the only thing of value that I owned. And we were going to sell the house mm. and get a little farmhouse. Um, you know, I, my kids were, you know, seven, eight, seven, nine, eleven, maybe in that age group. They were kind of unaware of what was going on. But uh, that—that's where I was. I mean, I—I I was. You were down to back down to three or four people wow. from you know from seventeen. I was. And, most of my friends, and they told me this years later, my business colleagues that, you know, people that I would would mentor me and help me, they're all like, Tom, we all thought you were done. <laughs> we thought you got you were gone. You had this secure it was gonna be done. But you pivoted. And, well, we we got an order. One order finally came in. It was about a half million dollar order with a, some profit on it. It was enough to float me a little bit. Then we got into some law enforcement and things slowly started. But it was at that time I realized no matter how good we are. If Congress turns off the faucet, I'm a, I'm a dead duck. I'm right. dead. So we said, we got to do something different. What else can we do? I said, well, we could look at the safe market. We've never done that. And I started looking at the safe market, and it took me, you know, a couple hours of research to see that you now the military in its biggest year was $23 million in a year spend. The average year, they ran between 8 and $13 million a year with the Defense Department was spending on weapon storage and armory builds. Consumer market's closer to $600 million a year. Wow. <laughs> and I'm just no like, brainer. I'm looking at this going, but you know, we, we transitioned into the consumer products and came out of the gate. We had the fast box was the first product that started selling. We were a lot of law enforcement early on because that's, that's, we didn't know how to sell safes to the, to the public. We didn't have an e-com site. So we just were selling at law enforcement and we built an e-com site. It wasn't very good when we had one. Started selling them and, uh, and then developed the agile ultralight gun safe as really taking everything we knew that like the Marine Corps wanted, the military wanted in weapon storage and putting that into a consumer product. So military, they don't want weight. They want performance. So we got the weight out of it. And they don't you know, drywall, no, that's not even drywall inside a safe isn't even allowed in an armory because it's corrosive. It's a banned I, mean, I can't we couldn't use it if we wanted to. There's a lot of stuff in safes that are banned from museums banned from military armories. So we just took this, you know, lightweight, like well, people buy a lightweight safe. So we, we started building this and then we came up with a slide lock technology, um, which I actually developed with my laptop storage cabinets. They were so expensive to ship. Came up with this solution for a, something that ships flat and you assemble it. Once assembled, it's incredibly strong. And we call it slide lock and the agile ships flat and you build it. I always tell people, if you have two of the cabinets, First one will take you 20 minutes to build. Seven, second one will take you seven minutes. Um, it's just, they go together really. Huh. It's a neat one. Once you tighten the, 
it's eight screws. Once you tighten those, it's unbelievable how the metal locks together. It's so strong, but lightweight, fast access, modular storage for your home. People have never seen that. Gun safes are big, heavy things you put in the basement. We're like, no. And that's what that's what's crazy. Learning yeah. stuff from you is obviously I've been with guns my whole life. Yeah. We've had big, heavy safes my yep. whole life, but they've always been in the garage. Yep. You know, everything in one place. Maybe yep. two safes, but everything right there. Yeah. Well, we've talked about it plenty of times over the past couple of years. You're not your whole key, but a very big component of what you sell is decentralized weapon storage yeah that's that's and a culmination if, of what we have yeah, if you're in the kitchen and somebody breaks in you don't hey excuse me robert let me go to the garage and get something right. real quick um if you're in your bedroom where at night uh, you yep. can't run down there so having yep. these little fast boxes in your underneath your bed in your closet one in the kitchen one in your pantry you know wherever you're at one in the office i love that idea to where you're you're all you always have something available fa fastly Fast. It is. I mean, most of our customers own multiple firearms. Yeah. And if you're going to own, and, and the, the mindset has always been all your guns go in one place, in the safe, in the big metal box. Yep. But that's not, that's not how we live with firearms. Especially if, you've, if, if home defense is part of your reason for owning firearms. And most people, while they may be avid hunters, sport, you know, sports shooters, still, the, the fact is you can also defend yourself. Yeah. So it makes far more sense to break that collection up and put small modular safes in locations that actually make sense. You know, our little Fastbox 20, in kitchen pantry, simple, fits on a shelf, you can bolt it to the wall. You can hold, it'll eight. hold eight handguns, but I typically do some handguns, with one, one a single peg for fast access, some magazines in the bottom, any other valuables. Um, front hall closet by your front door. I have an agile cabinet in mine behind the coats. Um, at my from my front door, I can get to that cabinet and arm myself in about four seconds. You see me with a yeah. with a fast box. Yeah. Well, I think you said that's got to be less than two seconds yeah, for me impressive. to arm myself. I'm again. I practice access, and we tell all of our customers, you know, if you're a handgun guy and you're training for home defense or self defense, you. And I'm a big believer in get every bit of training you can. I've done so much redundant training because I enjoy it. And even if it's a class I've taken multiple times, always walk away learning something. And uh, but anyways, you know your dry fire drills, your draw drills, all these drills you practice, and you practice them a certain way to build muscle memory. We say practice your access. So every time I open my front hall closet, I do that combination. Yeah. Every night when I go to bed, not now I've done it so much. You know, first thirty days, forty days, I tell everybody, if you got a fast box under your bed, just reach down, do the combination, smooth and deliberate, build the muscle memory. After about 30, 40 days, you no longer – you can have a conversation going with your wife and you reach down there without even thinking, opening it. Yeah, but just the uh, – if you – like you talk about, as much as you do class and classes and learning and all the repetition, if you do it once or twice and forget about it, yep. that's what a lot of people do with when getting a – uh, concealed ca you know yeah. carry they go out and they practice for that week that they have to go get their ccw but then after that they might not shoot for six months or a year uh, and you have to practice because when the if god forbid a time ever comes where you have to act on those skills you better be practicing right. a lot more than one day and if you have to get into a safe 
Again, yeah. when there's some shit hits the fan, you don't want to go, oh, 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 oh. You want to come right. smooth. What did you say the military's line was? Oh, um, S- slow, slow smooth. smooth, smooth as fast. Yeah, yeah I think no. I think that's the line. It's uh, but you know, it's it's. I know I talk to so many people and they come to me about you know buying their first firearm. And it's what's really exciting, fascinating is I've had so many colleagues and family members who I would classify as very liberal. Some very anti two A. Well, when the when all this defund police, all this came out, <laughs> all of a sudden they're like, Tom, I want to get a firearm. Mm-hmm. And the, the the greatest thing of this is I'm I you know I'm I'm not I'm you know my expertise ends when you open the door of my safe. And I don't I'm not I don't profess to be a firearms expert. I'm not. Um, but I just tell them get the training. That's number one thing is get the training and you've got to commit to practice. Buying your first firearm should be a lifestyle change a change in how you live because training it becomes part of your weekly routine and i've got so many people that they go to the range and start shooting all of a sudden they find they really like the 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 focus the when you're at a range and you're practicing your mind clears of everything and where you have the headphones on so the sound is blocked other than your firearm and you get in your own little zone world and they're all like you know i really like it and i've got Three that I can think of quickly that have come back saying, you know, Tom, I want to get an AR-15. Now they bought a handgun. I'm just like, it's the safest gun you'll ever own. And these are people that were anti-gun. That's awesome. And it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to watch. But, again, I was t- it, the training, you train for your axes, train for your draw, but training with that firearm is so important because when things go wrong, if there's a break-in in your house, the panic situation kicks in, and I'm sorry if you know none of us. You know, you, certainly, you and I we're not trained in the military. We're not trained yeah. in law enforcement. We're not trained to deal with that level of stress. So, somebody breaks into my house and discharges a firearm in my home, yeah. I will go into fight or flight mode. I'm gonna get. T- I'm gonna narrow my vision. My blood's gonna leave the thinking part of my brain and go down into the very base of your brain where it's instinctive fight or flight, and you're gonna rely on instinctive mode. To get through this but that's not always the best thing to do but if you practiced and you got that muscle memory that's part of your instinctive mode and now you've got all that so i always tell everybody you've got to practice those pieces so that again you're putting yourself in a position to be successful yeah. and it's a it's you know, critical i talk with a buddy on here a lot about situational mm-hmm. things like that and how much you have to practice and what gun you carry you and if you're going to carry it, you're going to carry to a concert differently than you carry to the beach, different than you carry out night with your wife, different than so all yeah. these situations. And you have to practice for each of those situations. Yeah, because you I don't might carry. be doing a cross draw. You might do it, right. you know, all these different things. And it, that this repetition and practice comes down to a lot of things in life, really. Yeah, it's my work schedule, my travel schedule has been very difficult lately. And for the last several years, I mean, I enjoy what I do, and I'm, I love getting out, especially coming out here. Yeah. I'm here fishing and doing the pot. It just this is so much fun. But I don't have the time. I'm not training, practicing as I should, and I do not conceal carry a firearm because I'm not proficient enough with a handgun at this point gotcha. to do that. Now, if I could conceal carry, if I had, a, I mean, if I was going to keep a rifle in my truck, I, I do a lot more training with an AR-15 for. Uh, um, you know, tactical carbine training. I've done mm-hmm. a lot of classes. I do a lot of sh- – when I go to the range, that's typically what I work with. I'm far more comfortable with a rifle than I am with a handgun. I am i don't consider myself a handgun shooter. I've taken a lot of classes. I've shot a lot of guns. 
but it's not my. I, I would rather sit at two thousand yards gotcha. and you know trying yeah. to shoot sporting clays stuck to a little stand. That's and cool. I yeah, find we do that. That that's that's more my thing. That's the cool thing about Nevada, right? The eighty-seven percent open open BLM it land. Is. You can go out just. I mean, we go out here like ten miles north of town. And yeah, shoot yeah, up to two thousand yards. Like as far as you want. Yeah, yeah, it's New York State is tough because it's hard to find a range. But our hunting ranch, you know, my wife and I bought. It's a five hundred acre ranch, and the way the land is set up, it's very hilly. But I've got, I've got a spot where I'm. I'm there's almost eighteen hundred yards. I've got to take some trees down. Mm-hmm. But my wife was dead. She says, honey, you're not putting a range in at the property. <laughs> and I'm like, honey, I'm not going to put a range in. Don't worry. No. I might put some steel in. It's not a range. I might yeah, build a little platform up in the woods and maybe put a little hibachi there so you can, you know, grill some uh, calamari while you're shooting. You know, a civilized way to shoot. But uh, uh, And I, I agree with her that I don't want to be out there lighting that place up. It, yeah. is, such a, it is such a place of nature. That's That's why we own it. That's... We bought it to preserve it. It was a piece of land that was going to be about to be broken up. They're trying to sell it, and they're nobody was buying it, and they're about to cut it up into small pieces. And we just stepped in and said, "No, you know what? This has been a it's been a preserve for you know last sixty years." That's so cool. we bought it, and it's a uh, I'm kind of locked. It's a cool spot. I've got a farmer on one side, I've got state land on the other, I've got mountain. Just the way it's locked in, it's uh, it yeah, it's, it's it's a cool setup. I wanted to talk about one more thing when it mm-hmm. give back to your safes a little bit that yeah. I remember talking to you a little bit last time when you were out here that I think people will find fascinating when it comes to um, fires, fire, um, you know, two and a half hour fire, deal, it's, four hour, fire, four hour. What do they call it? Fire, fire ratings, or, fire ratings. Thank yeah. you. I couldn't think of the word for a second. And I'm like, well, hell yeah. I want my fire, you know, my firearms protected, but you're the mindset. If, let me, if, if, if I remember right, <clears throat> I can't remember the percentage. I'm going to throw them out there. You can correct me because you've probably done the research more than obviously than I have. Let's say 87% of the people in this world or in this country live within an hour of a firehouse or something like that, 30 minutes of a firehouse. And if a fire breaks out, those people are going oh, to be to your firehouse within the, 15. What are those numbers? I remember you talking the, to me. About if you if you live in a if you live in a community with a paid firefighting force, a city has a paid firefighting force. Yeah. The, the the response time to your home is is three to four minutes. Three to four up. minutes. So you, now I live. I have a volunteer fire department in my town. I live in the village, Casnovia. It's three thousand people. Eleven minutes to my house. It's still it's that quick because the guys are I mean, it's, and it's You can get the data. Call your fire insurance company. Give them your zip code. Give them your address. They know the access time. That's how they rate policies. But the other side, I mean, I talk to so many, and so many people consider fire protection a big part of their purchase decision. A couple of challenges. A, the materials they use for fire protection are very corrosive to firearms. That's why they sell the goldenrod, the desiccants, all these things to stop corrosion because drywall has a lot of components that are corrosive. Now, in a home, there's so much air movement in a home, it's not an issue. But in an enclosed safe, it is. And I tell people, if a safe's been closed for a long time or if safes that ship into stores and they're sitting there, like if, you, if you're in a safe shop or in like a Bass Pro, open a safe. A brand-new safe's been closed for a while. Put your nose in there as you open it. You'll pick up a slight odor of sulfur. Ooh. That is sulfuric and sulfurous acids. 
extremely corrosive, and that's because of the materials in the drywall. The other side, though, that people need to realize, and it's and when I talk to people about it, I had never thought of that, is what happens during a fire. And let's say you've got your house is involved in a very hot fire, you know, a fire that damp that ripped that burns down your house. The odds of it happening are so rare. Um, we, because we, of the we, response time that we're well, talking just about. Just, yeah. Well, was it, tell me the exact numbers. 91%. It might be 91%. I think it was not, Of all fires occur in the kitchen and the damage is contained to a pot or to the oven. Fire department shows up, but the damage in the home is smoke damage. If you look at 87% of all uh, insurance claims are smoke damage claims. Actual heat damage is extremely rare because house fires are extremely rare. Um, but let, let's say you've got a safe that's been involved in a fire and the safe looks all cooked up and it's burnt up pretty good and you got to have uh, the locks all burnt. So you have to hire a locksmith come in, they drill it and they get the safe open and there's some guns in there. Now they look okay, beautiful, great, wonderful. My question is, do you know how hot they got? And the reason I ask that, um, we cooked off a safe. It was an American-made safe with a 75-minute fire rating. We built a burn box just to build like a, a house out in the farm of a, like simulating a room in your house. And we had a temp probe in the safe and we set it off. 75 minute safe, at about 18 minutes, the safe was 400 degrees. The test breaks at three, 350, roughly. Is like the rating normally is one hour under 350. We were at 400 degrees in 18 minutes. Mm. I mean, because of the convective nature of fires, I mean, the air is moving, the test on a safe, the actual certified test is a static oven. When you have air not moving, heat doesn't transfer. So that's we ended the test. We're like, holy crap, 18 minutes, boom. All right, guys, we were shooting a video. I was like, put the fire out. So got the fire, put out some fire extinguishers. And then we're just talking. We're kind of letting things cool down and stuff. Well, I'm looking at that temp probe. 30 minutes later, the inside of the safe was 720 degrees. Ooh. That, what happened? Because the metal on the outside of that safe was, you know, 900 degrees, 1,000, whatever it is. Maybe, I don't know how hot it got. But it's, it keeps transferring heat. So when you look at firearms, let's say you've got chassis guns. If you've got wood guns, a wood's going to be burned up. But it might not. Um, chassis guns, you're never going to see it. But hardened steel starts breaking down 380 degrees, roughly, is when hardened steel, the properties of temper can start changing. Annealed steel breaks down starting around 650 to 680 degrees. That's your barrels. So you look at bolts and barrels, or you know, action, you know, how, depending on the type of firearm, you don't know how hot the inside yeah. of that safe got. And if, you're sa if you've got insurance on your home, and you've got a fire, the insurance company typically is gonna buy all those guns and destroy them. They don't want you shooting them. They don't want the liability. And I don't believe you should, because do you know the metal quality has changed? If you've got a 300 wind mag that's been in a fire and you don't know how it got, I don't want that chamber next to my cheek when I pull the trigger. Yeah, for sure. Because a gun that fails at that level will kill you very easily. And there is documented cases of firearms blowing up in people's faces. I, I remember you talking about that, and I never have thought yeah. about that because you do see, um, like you're talking about these American-made safes yep. that, oh, another one of our safes in a fire, and it protected guns. And it's like after 
and I never, I was like, yeah. oh, really? That's awesome. I can't believe it did that. But then at the same time, you, you get to the nuts and bolts of it yeah. and talk to the people like you who've done research. You just go, oh, my God. It's, we I've don't do never... a fire rating because, A, the actual odds of a fire in your home at that level is so rare. Insurance is readily available. And just replace the guns. Now, if you've got relic guns that are un, you can't replace them. Yeah. You know, a couple of options are you need to get a TL rated safe. That is a cement filled safe. We make a safe called the True Safe. We don't market heavily. It's sold. We sell it strictly through Safe and Vault. It's too heavy for us to deal with. We made it to prove a point saying this is, you want something that's got some fire rating, this is a fire rated safe. Now, we did the test, the, whatever the name is, certified test for testing yeah. a gun safe. Our safe went two hours, 20 minutes before it broke 350. The safe was sitting on a truck in the sun as we were setting up the ovens. The safe went into the oven. It was 90, like 94 degrees inside the safe, and we started the test. Had we been at 75 degrees, that safe probably would have gone a lot longer. We give that safe a 20-minute rating. That's it because, again, this is a safe that any other company would give a two-hour, 20-minute rating, which is unheard of. Convective heat versus static heat. And to give an easy example, when you're making a pizza in your oven, you preheat your oven to 400 or 500 degrees. You open the door to put the pizza in, you put it in, you go to take it out. You could put your hand in a 500-degree oven and just hold it there. I'll bet you can go damn near a minute. The air is not moving, and your hand is slowly heating up. And somewhere it's 45 seconds to a minute, maybe a longer. You're going to have to pull it out because it's going to eventually burn. Take a small jet engine, mount it onto a bench, get it running where the exhaust is coming out of this little jet engine at, at, 500, at degrees. 500 degrees going 60 miles an hour. Put your hand in that exhaust stream. It'll burn the skin off your bone in less than a second. It'll rip you apart. A fire in a home, a, a truly engulfed home, the air in that home is moving in excess of 60 miles an hour. It is a torrent as that fire rips through the house of con the convective nature. And that's why gun safes don't survive real fires. When you look at Remember the big fires they had in California? Wildland fires. Yeah, and yeah. the stories, you can Google it up. Gun safes, wildland fires. None of them survived. I mean, none of the safes survived. None of the guns survived. That was a hot fire. It destroyed everything. So you don't need a fire rating. And the materials that they're using to try to get it are the causes of corrosion in your safes. With our safes, we do not recommend that you need golden rods, desiccants, any of those products. A properly cleaned and oiled gun isn't going to corrode. Even in environments that are relatively humid. I mean, I live near the, I grew up right near the Great Lakes. My grandfather had a cabin very close to Lake Erie. I mean, almost on the water. It's a very humid area in the summer. He had a glass gun case with, uh, you know, just yeah. old, they're hunting rifles. Mm -hmm. He was a, he'd go moose hunting and stuff. And they're just your traditional hunt. He never, there was no, Anti, you know, and none of this, you know, anti-corrosion stuff in his gun in, in that cab. It was just a glass case. Those guns didn't rust. Rust wasn't an issue. But in a real gun safe, in a modern gun safe, you put your guns in there, close the door, come back in a year without checking them, you're going to find rust in those guns. And uh, it's because of the materials in there. I have this information on our website about the science of the actual um, organic chemistry that's going on in drywall. You know, time, moisture, and uh, drywall is, it's just, you know, who was it? A friend of mine, Walt Larson, said, Tom, it's a toxic box. <laughs> that was his term. 
And he wanted me to market with that to talk. I said, I don't, I, I don't want to be that divisive. But it's, you know, if you've got a traditional gun safe, just, you know, I'm not trying to bash safes. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's the only thing that's available. And that's, they've been around a long time. It's just they've never changed. The world's modernized, but safes have never changed. But if you got them, just open them up. Just open your safe up at least once a week. Let it let it vent. That's the simplest thing you can do. And then the interior of a safe has never changed. And those little W's for holding guns is horribly inefficient. Go back to the late 60s. Most guns were pretty close to 40 inches. In, and they were in a pretty narrow band. Most guns didn't have optics back then. They were all pretty traditional, pretty standard looking. And the system worked. But you come flash forward now is so many people, if you've got a collection of firearms, you're going to go from you know, subs and small, I mean, I've got Beretta Storms yep. on up to big duck guns. And that system with a shelf, that one adjustable shelf with all those little W's simply isn't adjustable in the capacity. It's never going to hold what it says. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, we do have a solution that allows you to take your safe or even half your safe. We did it today yep. with, uh, one of, with one of Chad's big safes. We took half the safe, removed the interior, and installed cradle grid panels and converted half the safe to our system, which... I mean, if you've got, if you've got a big safe, but you've got a lot of guns, but a handful of guns with expensive optics and really nice guns, convert a portion of that safe to cradle grid. Now you know those guns are stored in a manner where nothing is—they're never going to get any damage. Um, there's an article in the—I think it was Truth About Guns or on Pew Pew Tactical—and was talking about wear and tear in firearms. They made the claim that. The bulk of all wear and tear on firearms occurs going in and out of gun safes. It <laughs> makes sense. And because you dig through. You're setting your guns on the ground to get to the one in the back. Things are banging yeah. into each other. Um, you know, most of my guns are tools. I, I don't I don't have, you know, what do you call them? Rat queens, garage queens, whatever you want to call them. I, I buy guns and I shoot them all. But I do have, recently I, I got a, uh, um, a Marlin that was a true, I mean, it was just, it's a beautiful um, what do they call it? presentation rifle? They, I mean, just yep, yep. this thing is gorgeous, and uh, we use them in videos a lot. And we're we're doing we're taking we're, ta we're showing the difference between traditional gun safes and our system. And it was going in and out of a gun safe in a video, and we got done with the shoot. It was a two day shoot. We're doing all this stuff. And I looked at the gun. These are, you know guys, like a camera guys here and stuff. It, marked up everywhere. Yeah, it was. And this was this. I mean, this was it's a gun I would never buy, but a local dealer had a break in and said, Tom, I need some Model 84 or military. I need, I need two Model 84 weapon racks because how much are you going to how much are they? And I had some there and I said, look, man, we'll get you hooked up. I go, tell you what, I'll give these to you. I'd like a really nice lever action gun. Just I want something to put on a put on my wall. I just want something beautiful. And we worked out a deal. Nice. And now the gun's all bad. You know, it's uh, <laughs> so it's, I still go to the range, but uh, um, guns are tools. And for, for me, they're cool tools. But Well, I appreciate the talk and the partnership. And I know we got some big things coming up and going uh, to do a lot of cool things together. But if you guys are out there looking for uh, or in the game for a new safe, and it doesn't matter if you have an existing safe, you can change out the inside. Yeah. Um, but really look at them. Go on to Secure It's website. And check out all the stuff that they have because once you start doing some um, thinking about decentralized gun storage, it really makes sense. 
and they have the products to do it to get all these things um, spread out in your home to where wherever you're at in the home you're going to be having quick access to all your weapons so they got those they if you have an actual room that you want to completely do into a gun room they have complete wall systems and grid systems and everything like that so they have everything that you need to go from your gun safe so small gun safe to decentralized to your military friends and i'm sure we got a whole bunch of new stuff coming out i know you, know, you do so well let's not i don't want to forget you know we developed, we worked, you know, with you guys and with Chad to make the foul life version of our yep. answer aid safe. And I'll tell you what, what Chad did with that safe, and I'm sure you guys are all involved, is yep. absolutely amazing. And you know, for all the listeners, if you guys are, if you guys follow the foul life and you're avid waterfowl hunters, and you're and you've got the same kind of gear that, that you guys are using, you've got to look at the the, the foul life version of the safe because yep. you guys took it, Chad took it, and actually took everything we had. You guys are in Syracuse. We laid it all out, and he built it, and we sat through. He spent half a day really laying out to store all his guns and all his gear. And what he created is something I never would have thought of because yeah. I'm not him. I don't. That's not my world. But uh, the foul life version of a safe, it's offered. You know, When you buy it as that version, you're discounted on all the accessories, and uh, you're supporting, you know, better, safer storage for your guns, more organization. You're also supporting the file life, which I think is important. And uh, take a look. I'm sure you guys have the safe on we do. Uh, on your website. We've got, we've got it on ours. And uh, it's the first safe that's ever been designed and marketed specifically for the shotgun owner, for, for the waterfowl and uh, shotgun shooter. And yeah, buddy. It's, it's a cool product. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, next week we'll be having my uncle mel and the usual cast alex and clinton maybe joel blakesley back in here talking about some more nevada hunting gun laws and bills coming up so until then thanks for listening and peace out